0: This program is brought to you by PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. To learn more about this podcast, visit pli.edu slash pro podcast. When the government acknowledges that it's done something wrong and then takes affirmative steps and actions to try to address and correct that, that improves and increases and enhances the strength of our democracy. It fosters racial racial healing.
1: This is the story of Bruce's Beach, and it is the first example of reparations to a family harmed by racist land policies. Now, the Bruce's property was taken 100 years ago, and there have been plenty of news stories about the groundbreaking decision by L.A. County to return that land in 2022. But those news stories have not talked about the pro bono legal work that was absolutely required to make sure the reparation process was successful join us now for a conversation with lead counsel for the bruce family george Fathery of sidley austin we take a deep dive into the story of willa and charles bruce the use of eminent domain to stop their successful beachfront club and the role of pro bono lawyers in ensuring a smooth pathway for L.A. County to make restitution to the Bruce's descendants. Welcome to Pursuing Justice, the Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute, in which lawyers and clients talk candidly about their pro bono experiences, I'm your host, Alicia Aiken, and for 15 years, I was a legal services attorney in Chicago. Now, I'm a principal at Danu Center for Strategic Advocacy, a national organization supporting advocates and mission-based organizations in their own pursuit of social justice. I'm also a faculty fellow at PLI, where I get to work on special projects like this podcast. George Fathery, and I talked in depth about Bruce's Beach, but we also talked about his path to law school and how pro bono has been a central part of his career in big law. To hear more about George and his wide-ranging pro bono work, check out the bonus episode we've posted along with this episode. Now, to get started on the Bruce's Beach discussion, we're going to dive into the story of Willa and Charles Bruce, and the beach club they built in Southern California in the early decades of the 20th century.
0: My name is George Fathery. I am a partner in the real estate group at Sidley Austin, and I work out of Sidley's Los Angeles office.
1: So I am particularly excited to talk to you about Bruce's Beach, and so in order to understand what you did that was cool and interesting and visionary on the pro bono side, I think people need to understand the story and the history of Bruce's Beach. So can you tell us about Bruce's Beach?
0: Very happy to. Bruce's Beach was a beachside resort in what is today the city of Manhattan Beach, California. Manhattan Beach is is in Los Angeles County. It's one of the most beautiful stretches of California coastline anywhere and Bruce's beach was a resort that was built by Charles and Willa Bruce they started in 1912 in 1912 they bought their first parcel of land it was right on the sand right in you know right on California's beautiful coastline in Manhattan Beach they bought it in 1912. It started very modestly. It was a it was a sandwich stand where you could come and, and buy a sandwich and maybe a soda. And what was special and unique about this business was it 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 catered to and it was, you know, and it was patronized by mostly black Angelinos, African Americans who who lived in Los Angeles at the time. There weren't a lot of other beaches in the area that were that were integrated, that were, that were open, open to blacks and so Willa Bruce who was the wife she she bought this parcel of land her husband you know worked as a Pullman porter on the railroad from LA to Salt Lake City so he was you know probably out of town a bunch Willa had bought this land she set up this stand of catering to you know black beachgoers uh it became very popular this was this was kind of an important thing in Los Angeles's black community and and over time she was able to expand and not just have the stand but she 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 put up a tent where she would rent bathing suits so now you could take the train down to the beach and rent a bathing suit and go down to the water and spend the day and then come back and and buy a sandwich and a and get a soda and that also became very you know popular and and lots of people came and the business became so successful that within a few years she was able to buy a second piece of property adjacent to the first. She was able to construct a two story uh, brick building. The ground floor of the building had about thirty changing rooms and upstairs there was a dining room and a, and a dance parlor and I, you know, it's hard to it's hard to describe what a, a kind of special place Bruce's Beach became, not just for African-Americans in Los Angeles County, but for black Americans really all over the, the Western United States. You, you'd have, you know, families come from San Francisco and from St. Louis to spend a week here at Bruce's Beach. Unfortunately, not Everyone was excited about the the success and the popularity of Bruce's Beach. And almost from the beginning, when Charles and, and Willa started this business, you started hearing rumblings from some of the white neighbors in Manhattan Beach at the time. And if you go back and you look at the newspaper articles, they use language like the Negro invasion and you know the Negroes threatening our way of life. And so from early on, What you started to see was some of the white neighbors engaging in harassment and intimidation. And And it started off, you know, maybe maybe in a mild way. They'd they'd put up no parking signs. Some patrons would come back and they'd find that the air had been let out of their car tires or their car tires had been slashed.
1: On top of that, no trespassing signs were put up along the strip of beach right in front of the Bruce's Club forcing their patrons to walk a half mile in either direction to actually get onto the beach. Now, history is not quite certain who put up the no trespassing signs, but we do know they went up on the property owned by George Peck, who was one of the founders of Manhattan Beach. And beyond this harassment of the Bruce's and their customers, the newspapers of the time reported an active Ku Klux Klan in Manhattan Beach, California. A clan that used arson and cross burnings to intimidate black landowners and visitors in Manhattan Beach.
0: There's one incident that was reported as a police report and was reported in the newspaper of a group of men, they they took an old mattress that had been soaked in kerosene and they stuffed they tried to stuff the mattress under the building and set it on fire to, to burn the building down.
1: Can I ask a question real yeah. quick? Did that happen to the Bruce's or the Slaughter's? The Slaughter's were another family that had a boarding house after the Bruce's lost their property. And I I know they also had an arson on their property. (laughs) It happened to both of them? I mean, I believe yeah, it, 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 it,
0: but... it, It happened to both of them. So, so with the Bruce's Beach, with the building that the Bruce's built, you know, men came at night, they they stuffed this kerosene-soaked mattress under the building and tried to set it on fire. The Slaughter's were a black family that had owned property a few blocks away and built a home there. And they woke up in the middle of the night, one night, this was, this was after the attempt on the Bruce property, to find a cross burning in their front yard. And so, it happened to both families. Um, Okay. There were you know, Ku Klux Klan rallies at the time. And what's amazing to me is in the face of all of this, you know, harassment, intimidation, violence, Bruce's Beach only got more and more popular <laughs> and, and folks kept coming. And so finally, what happened is the city of Manhattan Beach hatched a scheme to take the property via eminent domain. And what the what the city council said, I think it was called the town council at the time. But what the council said is, we need to build a public park here in the city of Manhattan Beach. And what's crazy is I've got photographs and I've got maps of what the area looked at at the time. And, and when you, you look at Bruce's Beach, it's this two-story building, and you look to the right and you look to the left and you look behind it. And really, as far as the eye can see, It's vacant land. There's no other structures. There's no other buildings. But of course, the town council says, we need the park to go right here, right under Bruce's beach building. So the Bruce's hired an attorney. They fought the action, but, but it was to no avail. And eventually, they lost their property in this racially motivated imminent domain action. On the same day that the town council voted to condemn the Bruce's property, The council passed a series of ordinances, Mm -hmm. municipal ordinances that made it illegal to open up a business on the beach without a license that made it illegal to, you know, change into a bathing suit in a tent that's on the beach. They basically wanted to make sure that the Bruce's didn't go and set up shop, you know, just further down the beach. The city also immediately demolished the building and tore it down. They wanted to make sure that there wouldn't be, you know, a successful appeal. This was all in 1924. Our records show that the Bruces, Will and Charles, they left Manhattan Beach. You know, our records show that they they died in in relative poverty. Eventually, you know, their entire family moved out of the state. And and that, that yeah, and that's what happened at Bruce's Beach, and that was almost a hundred years ago.
1: Yeah, and and it's my understanding that at the time that they condemned the property, first of all, they condemned two full blocks, and there were several other black families that had bought on those blocks who also lost their property. And there was a veneer of we need to build a park. It wasn't a very thick veneer, but in subsequent years, people came out and said, "Oh yeah, we totally avoided." to use their words, the Negro invasion. We successfully kept them out of Manhattan Beach, but we were told at the time that we should say it's for a park. So in case anybody thinks, well, how do you really know it was racist motivations? The people who did it came out and said so in subsequent years. Right?
0: Yeah, look, that, look, that's, that's exactly right. You mentioned a couple of things. So it's interesting. Because of the success of Bruce's Beach, what you had was you actually had other Black families who moved to Manhattan Beach. There were four other Black families who moved to Manhattan Beach and built homes in the city and in, in the blocks around the Bruce's Beach Resort. And so when the city of Manhattan Beach did its imminent domain action... They condemned enough land and the shape of the land that they condemned was designed so that they would take every home that was built by a black family in Manhattan Beach. It wasn't just the Bruce's. It was the Bruce's and these four other families. Um, you, You know, the ostensible purpose of the taking was to build the public park. I'll tell you, to this day, 100 years later, no park has ever been built on the property that was taken from Willa and Charles Bruce. And then as you also mentioned, several years after the taking, there was an interview with the gentleman who was at the time the president of the town council. And he admitted in this interview that the true reason for the taking was to stop the Negro invasion. He admitted that they had been the council members had been advised by their attorneys to never mention that was the true motivation of the meeting, so yeah, in case uh, any of the listeners had doubts as to well, was this really racially motivated, this is one of those rare instances where it's like not only do we kind of know it instinctually, but we've got smoking gun smoking gun evidence that this was racially motivated
1: right, right, and so no park was ever built on the piece of property taken from the Bruces. it did it pass out of the Manhattan Beach ownership into someone else's hands?
0: Yeah. So so here's what happened to the property that the Bruce's lost. It was condemned and taken by the city of Manhattan Beach in 1924. In the 1950s, the city of Manhattan Beach transferred the property to the state of California. This was part of the state of California's Coastal Commission Act, which established that the coastal lands were to be held in trust for the benefit of the people of of the state of California. And so the property was transferred to the state. And then in the 1980s, the state of California transferred the property to Los Angeles County. And this was part of a, a kind of local control and local governance movement. Now, what's important is when the state transferred the property to Los Angeles County in the 1980s, the state included some restrictions in the deed. And specifically, the state said, we're giving you, County of Los Angeles, this land, but it can only be used for public beach access and and recreation. And if you ever try to transfer it, we've got the right to take it back. And so the state transferred the land to the county but the state included these, these restrictions in terms of use and transfer that prohibited the county from, from doing, really doing anything with the land other than what it was being used for.
1: So to recap, Willa and Charles Bruce started their successful beach club in 1912. Then after years of intimidation and harassment didn't drive them away, the city of Manhattan Beach took the property by eminent domain, supposedly to build a park. And to this day, no park has ever been built on the Bruce's Seas land. But at one point, the property was transferred by Manhattan Beach to the state of California to be held in trust as coastal land. Then later, California transferred the land to Los Angeles County, but with a restriction that the land could only be used for public recreation. So that brings us up to about 80, 90 years later, after the property was seized from the Bruce's in the late 1920s. And America is really good at erasing its memory of things like this. Is there a reason why people still knew about what had happened at Bruce's Beach. why it was getting talked about, like who's responsible for keeping the memory alive?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. So, uh, you know, initially there, there were reporters, it was reporters. And this is, you know, it, you know, the first article I read was probably from 2017, but there were reporters who told, who told about this story and, and they had understood that, you know, hey, at some point this land was owned by black entrepreneurs the city of Manhattan Beach had erected a, a monument, kind of a, a plaque, around the property, and there was a lot of criticism because the the plaque, you know, kind of kind of whitewashed over over what had actually happened, and it and it didn't, you know, kind of get into the details about the racially motivated taking, and and that was, you know, essentially the condition of the property until 2020. And what happened in 2020 was. George Floyd's murder. And in the wake of George Floyd's murder, there was a renewed sense of, of focus and energy and urgency around the treatment of African Americans in this in this country. And one of the people who was activated and I think agitated. By by the Floyd murder was a woman who lived in the city of Manhattan Beach at the time. A woman by the name of Caban Ward, African American single mother. She had she had heard about the history of Bruce's Beach, and and it was you know it was an area where I imagine that she walked and she took her her child and she, and she she but she she knew about the history and in the wake of the Floyd murder. She decided that she wanted to raise awareness about this. And so she planned on Juneteenth of that year, Mr. Floyd was murdered in May and and Miss Ward planned a rally kind of at the at the site, at the site where Bruce's Beach stood in June of that year. And, you know, and I think she was trying to raise awareness about what had happened with the Bruce's. She was trying to, you know, get the city of Manhattan Beach to to issue a a formal apology, which I'll mention they still haven't done. She was trying to get, you know, the plaque to to more accurately reflect, you know, what had happened. And so she she organized this amazing event, this this kind of picnic and rally to to bring awareness. It was called, I think, Justice for Bruce's Beach. And one of the people who heard about this movement was Los Angeles County Supervisor Janice Hahn. Janice Hahn was the county supervisor whose district included the city of Manhattan Beach, and and what's interesting about Janice Hahn is, you know, her father was a L.A. county supervisor, and a lot of people don't know this, but her father was actually, you know, this is a this is a, a white family, but her father was very passionate about the civil rights movement, and in fact, when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. flew to Los Angeles to view the city and tour in the aftermath of the Watts riots, it was Janice Hahn's father who met Dr. King at the airport and drove him around LA and showed him LA. And so I imagine, you know, kind of a Janice Hahn growing up in this household, you know, white household from the Valley, but where kind of civil rights is being talked about and discussed at the table. And so so Janice Hahn heard about what happened to the Bruce's, I think largely to the attention that that Kavan Ward had brought to the issue. And she asked, well, you know, who owns that property now? And the answer was, you do. Los Angeles County.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Los
0: Angeles County does. And Supervisor Hahn courageously responded, well, I think we ought to give it back. And it was and it was through that statement and through that that action that desire that i ended up getting involved and we worked to for the first time in our country's history return property to a black family where that property had been wrongfully taken
1: i i do want us to to sit with that for a moment cuz and i am a litigator by nature and so so often when i'm problem solving, I'm thinking, how do I make people do things? How do I sue them and force it? And this is just a really interesting instance of someone stepping up and saying, actually, I can see what the right thing looks like and I'm in a position to do it. And I, and I want to advocate to make it happen. And there was still a need for a whole lot of lawyers and problem solvers, but not a litigator, more like a real estate attorney. <laughs> Don't you think like a real estate attorney is what they really needed at that moment?
0: Yeah. Although, although let me be clear, I started where you started. So before the county had 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 expressed its intention to return the property, I had read the story and i did exactly what you alluded to which is i did litigation research and i i enlisted some of my colleagues at my firm who who worked in litigation and i said you know we ought to to find what remedy this family has and we spent probably about 3 months looking into this and at the end of the 3 months we had developed some very i think creative and novel legal theories some creative approaches and claims but it wasn't anything that gave me high confidence that that we would prevail and i think at that time the last thing that i wanted to do was to reach out to this family and get their hopes up about a litigation claim that you know that i thought was was perhaps less than you know less than 90% sure so it wasn't until i read that the county had wanted to voluntarily return the property when i heard that I had two thoughts. My immediate thought was hallelujah. This is amazing. It's about time. You know, thank goodness. And it was one of real kind of excitement and jubilation. My second thought was, holy shit, this has never been done before. There's going to be a bunch of folks who don't wanna see this happen, right? What I thought was the same types of folks that didn't wanna see Charles and Willa run a successful kind of black business catering to black beachgoers back in the 1920s. Unfortunately, we've still got some of those folks around today and they're not gonna wanna see this property returned. They're not gonna wanna see this precedent. And so my second thought was this has got to be done exactly right. Who knows when we'll have the opportunity like this again and if this is done right, you know, there's a chance that it can serve as an example and as a model. And when I thought about that, what I realized was I've got to be involved with this. This is something <laughs> that it kind of, you know, it it it's it struck me at a personal level in terms of advocating for you know for you know for for justice on behalf of African Americans. It struck me at a professional level in terms of being a very complex real estate transaction, which is really what my training over the past 15 years has been. And so when I heard that the county intended to give the land back, at that point, I made the decision, this is something I've got to be involved with, because I want to make sure it's done exactly right.
1: Right. But that raises an interesting practical question. Willa and Charles passed in the 30s. So when the county said we want to give the land back and you said i want to represent the folks who are going to get the land back how do you figure out who your clients are
0: <laughs> yeah great great question so so the issue was is i knew i wanted to be involved but i didn't have a client and so you know i read the newspaper articles and i found a couple of names some of charles and and willis family members descendants and and I and I basically reached out to them, and I ended up sending them a message. And I, I was nervous that if I tried to call, I might come across as you know kind of as a salesperson or as an ambulance chaser. Sure. And so, so I remember I sent a message, and uh, and I and I didn't hear back. I didn't hear anything. Mm-hmm. And it was I don't know probably three weeks later when I got a phone call, and it was one of the members of the family. And I remember what I what I said on that phone call. And what I said was, I feel like I've been preparing my entire personal life and my entire professional career to be of service to your family in getting your land back. I said, I can't guarantee any specific outcome. But what I promise is that you will not find another attorney who's got my combination of Passion and commitment to getting justice for your family, combined with the technical expertise and experience to execute a complex real estate transaction like that, like this, that has never been done before. And I'll tell you, it wasn't until those words came out of my mouth that I realized that they were actually true. Because otherwise I look back on, you know, I look back on my career and having the different jobs and working in nonprofit and working as a consultant and becoming a real estate attorney and working in big law and doing pro bono and just none of it makes sense. Doing a
1: reparations case.
0: Doing doing reparations work. And so I really felt like all of that unbeknownst to me, because I didn't even know about the Bruces, all of that had been a path that I had been on. That was preparing me to help this family in this
1: matter, and you were at a farm that had major resources to support you doing this and and that that matters too right? i you know, so I, I
0: tell people all the time this matter could not have been handled by a solo practitioner or by a boutique firm or even, I think, by a public interest law firm. The issues were so broad and so complex in this matter that you really you really benefited by having the platform and the breadth and the resources that you get at a big law firm.
1: And I want to make sure credit goes where credit is due. When you started on this project, you were at Munger, Tolls & Olson, is that That's right? right? That's right. That's and, right. And then at some point, moved to Sidley Austin and brought the Bruce's work with you. So both firms have contributed to this outcome. That's right. We
0: had probably over a dozen attorneys at each firm, from litigation to real estate, to tax, to, you know, corporate law, who dedicated, I think, in whole, you know, over a million dollars in pro bono legal services to make sure not just that the land was returned to the Bruce family, but that it was done correctly the first time. And then it was done in a way that could eventually serve as a model for other folks that were looking to engage in similar acts of reparation and restitution.
1: So, but I'm going to come back to the question I asked, which is, Charles and Willow Bruce have passed, and it's going to go back to their family. How did you figure <laughs> out who were the right people to have as your clients who were the the folks that the LA County was actually going to give the property back. Yeah.
0: So when I, when I got hired, when I, you know, got retained for this case, I remember people telling me, you know, this, this is without precedent. This has never been done before, which, which is so foreign to us as lawyers. Everything we do is based on precedent. It's based on, you know, how did we do it last time? Let's improve it. Let's tweak it. But there was literally no precedent for this. And so a lot of the work that we did in this case, especially early on was really around thinking brainstorming what could go wrong if somebody wants to try to stop this what would they do what claims would they bring how could this get screwed up and early on one of the fears that i had was that we were going to spend all this time negotiating with los angeles county to get the land back and that in the eleventh hour there could be a long lost family member who showed up who said you know i'm a i'm a descendant of will and charles bruce i'm a legal heir and I want to do something different, you know, or, or, you know, I, I, I imagine that maybe we'd have the land returned and then somebody would come after the fact and say, you know, I'm entitled to this and I you know need to share in it. And so one of the very first things we did when I got hired for this case is I hired a genealogist. And we had someone run a family tree from from Willa and Charles Bruce to present day descendants. And they looked at marriage records and birth certificates and death certificates and voter registration and census data because we wanted to make sure that we were representing the right folks and that when we were negotiating with the county, we could credibly say that we represented the heirs of Willa Charles Bruce. And so that's just one example of something I've never done as an attorney before. As a real estate lawyer, I've never had to hire a genealogist. <laughs> right, right. That's a good point. But, we, were, but we, were, we wanted to make sure that we did this in a way that, you know, that would really withstand challenge and withstand scrutiny and could be used as a model. And so that was one of the early things we thought of.
1: Mm-hmm. And can we can we talk about this property a little bit? Like, I think. Willa Bruce bought the first property. So my notes tell me the first piece of property she bought in 1912, she paid, I think, a thousand two hundred and twenty five dollars for it. Sounds about right. And OK. And then she bought a second piece of property. And then when they con- when they used the law to contemn her property, she actually fought them to get more money than what they originally wanted to give and got about $14,000. What's it worth now?
0: So the property today is worth $20 million. This is prime coastal beachfront property. It's two adjacent lots. Each lot is about 30 feet wide and runs about 90 feet back. If you look to the right and you look to the left, you see, you know, ten and twelve million dollar homes. And so you know, the lot as it as it stands today is worth about twenty million dollars.
1: Okay. So at some point I want us to talk about this as such a a concrete manifest example of the consequences of prohibiting people from owning land, building wealth. And we can talk about it now or we can talk about it later, but but I, I just yeah. it's it's not theoretical here. It is, this family was deprived of property for racist reasons when it was worth $14,000 and they had to wait a hundred years-ish to get it back when it was worth $20 million. Yeah. And this is what happens, right? Yeah, now. and I
0: think, you know, look, it, it, during the course of my representation, I, you know, I studied a lot. I read a lot. I I read about eminent domain actions and, and racially motivated eminent domains. But one of the things I learned was that Imminent domain was not the only strategy that was used to dispossess black people of property ownership, right? If you think about it in in our country, you know, property ownership is a direct path to wealth creation. And then you pass that wealth down on an intergenerational basis and that leads to more wealth creation. And so, but it wasn't only eminent domain that was used to dispossess black people. You know, there were racially restrictive covenants, there were you know zoning laws there was you know redlining there were these very peculiar contracts agreements where, where black people were were sold real estate but if they missed a payment or failed to maintain the property it could be taken from them they'd lose all of their equity and so one of the things that our team looked at was you know yes eminent domain was used to take property from African Americans, but there were a lot of other strategies that were used and the collective effect of these strategies can be felt strongly today, right? We look at statistics and we see that on average, black households not only earn about half as much as white house, households, but they only have about 15 to 20 percent as much net wealth. And that's a direct result of these strategies that were used at every level of government, federal, state, and local, you know, really for decades that today have resulted in this, this gaping you know, wealth disparity.
1: If you want to better understand how U.S. land practices have created a racialized wealth disparity, I highly recommend the book The Color of Law by Richard Rosting. But now let's turn back to Bruce's speech and the story of just how complicated it can be to make up for past wrongs with present-day actions. So the Bruce's have the perfect lawyer. You confirm you've got the right clients. And the L.A. County, Janice Hahn, I'm assuming, persuades the rest of the county board of supervisors that this is the right thing to do?
0: That That's right. The county was committed to, you know, I'll say this. The county was committed to exploring this idea. The county had the intention to do it. And I think what the county was told was, was this has never been done before. And so we don't have a playbook to do this. You know, as as you know, in order to do this, we required special state legislation. I mentioned that when the state of California transferred the property to Los Angeles County, it included some restrictions in the deed that restricted how the property was used and prohibited the property from being transferred. And so one of the first things that folks realized was we're going to need a state law passed to remove those restrictions so that the county can try to transfer the property back to the Bruce heirs. By the time I had been engaged by my clients, that legislation had been had been drafted, and it had begun moving through California's legislature. And so one of the first things we did, again, after we hired the genealogists and confirmed the family tree, is we really analyzed the legislation. And again, our approach every step of the way was, what could go wrong here? If somebody wants to stop this, what what could they do? How do we make sure that we have flawless execution? And when we read the bill, we thought that the bill did a great job Removing the restrictions on the deed so that the county could transfer the property to the Bruces, but there were some other issues that we thought the bill needed to address, and it didn't. And so our team we ended up working with the bill's author and representatives from Los Angeles County, and we ended up sending several amendments to the bill that addressed things like how the transfer would be treated for California state income taxes that addressed you know potential claims that someone could bring that Transferring the property was an unconstitutional gift under California's constitution.
1: When the California legislature voted on the bill, I think it was unanimous, right?
0: In every committee in both houses and on both floors, not a single no vote. In fact, I was told that, you know, it had the votes to pass, but I was told that people like you know, came in sick and kind of changed their plans and left their kids at school because they wanted to vote yes on this bill. <laughs> so it didn't need the votes to pass, but yeah, and, and we hadn't, we hadn't, we haven't seen anything like that. You know, I mean, California's got a an active and vocal Republican caucus, and there's frequently you know votes that go along party lines, but this was a bill. You know, I think the history resonated so strongly with folks, and they and 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 they so understood. The wrongdoing that the bill passed unanimously in every committee and in both houses, and then was quickly signed by our governor. There were a number of other issues that came up that we used the legislation to help address to, you know, to make sure that this was done in a way that would withstand any legal challenge.
1: Mhm. Okay, so so you came in as a real estate attorney then your team got educated about genealogy. Now you're legislative you're doing legislative advocacy, which I'm sure folks at both of your firms knew how to do, but got to use that skill for good tax consequences. So this property is worth $20 million. It gets transferred to these heirs, who that would be a really awful tax bill to receive. So this the state legislature, I imagine, addressed that for California purposes. How did you address that problem for federal tax purposes?
0: <laughs> That's a fantastic question. And the answer is work in progress.
1: Got it. Okay. One, of,
0: one, of the, one of the first thoughts I had was, so so we knew that the county wanted to give the land back. The county was at the time and is still currently using the land for a lifeguard administration program that was going to be difficult and time-consuming to relocate. So we knew that the county wanted to give the land back. We wanted to do that as quickly as possible. We thought that in the interim, where once the family got the land back, the plan was the family could rent the land to the county of Los Angeles until the county figured out you know, what the right long-term solution was for how it was using the land. That would also give the family time to figure out what it wanted to do with the land. And so what 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 ran through my mind was, wait a minute, the family's gonna be returned property that's worth twenty million dollars, but they're not gonna be able to sell the property because they're gonna be leasing it back to the county of Los Angeles. If they get a tax bill, you know, and you know, tax it at 40% of twenty million dollars, they're gonna get an eight million dollar tax bill with no way to pay it. And so we've got to figure that out. We worked with the California uh, legislation to make sure that um, the transfer of the property did not have unintended tax consequences with respect to California income tax. You obviously can't do that with respect to federal taxes through California legislation. And so with respect to the federal taxes our team we spent a ton of time doing research looking at internal revenue code. I learned a lot about Nazi looted art. Which is a really great analogy if you think about it, right? The Nazis came in in the '40s and they would take this this painting off the wall and they give the Jewish family, you know, six dollars for the painting. Fast forward 30 years, the the painting gets returned to the the granddaughter, and it's a 25 million dollar painting now. And so we looked at, you know, how is that return treated for tax purposes? So, you know, we looked at, we looked at things like Japanese internment when the Japanese were interned in California and then they, then they got out, they received a payment to account for the time that they were interned. And um, how was, how was that payment treated? So we learned a lot about these things. And as a result, we ended up writing a letter, a, a private letter ruling to the Internal Revenue Service. And we've been in conversations with them about getting a, a ruling on that request.
1: Okay. This is fascinating. This is a law school example. <laughs>
0: and and I, I, again, I just, I mean, you know, what the team did more than anything was we just thought we, you know, we brainstormed yeah. what could go wrong. What are we not thinking about? How do we structure this so that it's, it withstands challenge and it and it's done exactly right.
1: Yeah. And so Sure enough, when you sat around and thought what could go wrong, one of the things you imagined is that somebody was going to complain that the owners of the property, the state of California and Los Angeles County, were somehow doing something wrong by giving it back to the people that it had been lawfully stolen from. And sure enough, somebody sued, right?
0: Yeah, we were disappointed, but not surprised that once Los Angeles County officially voted to a plan to return the property, a lawsuit was filed. And this lawsuit alleged that the county's return of public property to private individuals would violate California's constitutional prohibition on gift-making. This was an issue when we were analyzing the legislation and anticipating what might go wrong, this was an issue that our team thought about. We thought about someone bringing this claim and making these allegations. And so when it was filed, we were we were prepared. And the research and analysis and case law that we had looked at, it did generally say that the government cannot make a gift to a private individual. But importantly, what the case law said was it's not a gift if the government determines that transferring the funds or transferring the property serves a public purpose. And in this case, we thought that this act of restitution for this wrongful, racially motivated taking was a clear and legitimate public purpose. But it wasn't just our team who thought that. The California legislature, when they passed the legislation that enabled the county to do this, And the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors, when they passed a resolution authorizing the return, they made detailed findings about the history and what had happened to the Bruce's and how this was racially motivated. And they each concluded that returning the property to the Bruce heirs served the public good, was in the public's interest.
1: I don't know why that part gives me chills more than any of the more than any of the rest of it. There's something about having that formalized finding <laughs> that returning stolen property is in the public interest. It, it shouldn't be such a big deal. But it is well
0: I'll tell you you know the, the moment I think in the representation that gave gave me chills so we're, we're in litigation now and it was a, a private individual who sued Los Angeles County in the case on behalf of my clients we intervened the Bruces were obviously a, an interested party so we intervened on the side of the county we worked with the county and and the court ruled the judge issued his his order and the judge's order agreed with our position. The judge's order agreed that uh, there was a a public purpose and the county's returning the land. And the judge could have stopped there. The judge could have simply said, I find that returning this land to the Bruce family serves a public purpose, and the legislature made those findings, and we defer to the legislature when it makes those findings, and so case dismissed. The judge went further in his ruling. And what you have in this ruling is some very beautiful and powerful language. What the court says is when the government acknowledges that it's taken action that violate our core democratic principles of justice and equality, when the government acknowledges that and then does nothing about it, that erodes the public's trust in the government. It, it weakens the public's faith in our democratic institutions. And by the same token, when the government acknowledges that it's done something wrong and then takes affirmative steps and actions to try to address and correct that, that improves and increases and enhances the strength of our democracy. It fosters, you know, racial, you know, racial healing. And so I thought that that was very important and powerful language that we got from the court's decision.
1: I agree. And this is an Easter egg for dedicated listeners of the podcast, because you brought in a litigator from Munger, Tolls, and Olson to help you on that. And that litigator was
0: my, my dear friend and our new U.S. attorney here, Martin Estrada.
1: Friend of the podcast for his work in New Mexico on education reform there. So a guy I don't know at all, but I feel like I do. So he'll be really weirded out next time I'm in the area and I call him for lunch. Let, but let uh, me let <laughs> me let me
0: say something about Martin, because you know, at, at my firm. Uh, we had a number of capable and talented attorneys who could have represented the Bruce family in this litigation and when I went to Martine to talk to him about it you know there were there were rumors that that he was being considered to be named the next u.s attorney and you know what I said to him is I said look I think you know I think you'd be be great for this you know I want I think we should consider you know any 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 ramifications of, of your doing this. And, and if you think that, you know, there's a chance that, you know, that having this representation could adversely impact your chances of being, you know, of getting this nomination, like I totally understand. And Martine looked at me and he said, that doesn't matter to me. This is the right thing to do and I want to do it. <laughs> and so, and, yeah, and that's exactly the type of person he is. And that's why we're so fortunate to have him as our U.S. attorney. Here. Agreed. Yeah.
1: Agreed. Any any other legal issues you can think of that are interesting to talk about? You know, we
0: we hit we hit the main ones. I'll tell you there were a bunch of other things that came up. At one point in the case, we had to deal with the impact of of, of family law on the error determination. So at some point in the chain, there had been a, a legal adoption and we had to research and understand. What's the impact of a legal adoption on disinheriting someone? And and, and it turns out that if you're legally a, the general rule is that you are disinherited from, you know, from your prior, you know, your prior oh. parent. And so that, yes. that that was a devastating moment for us when we realized that because of the this potential disinheritance, it would have cut off the airline. Oh. Now, fortunate as we dug in the legal research, we realized that there was an exception. Mm-hmm. To the disinheritance, and it was a two-part test, and and as we dug in further and gathered facts, we we realized and were confident that you know we met the exception test, but that was that was an interesting issue. Some really complex issues related to title insurance for the property. When you know, as a commercial real estate attorney, whenever I buy real property for my clients, we make sure they get an owner's title policy where you've got you know the title insurance company who who's going to stand behind their ownership in the property and. And what we found was when I tried to get a tighter title insurance policy, the insurance company didn't want to give it. Um, this was without precedent. And they said, you know, we're, we're not sure that, that, that we want to stand behind the Bruce Ayers owning this. And so I actually had to, had to fire that title insurance company and go out and, and work with another title insurance company that was willing to, you know, to kind of, to do the work, to understand the issue and, and, and ask the right questions and get comfortable. You know, one of the, legal issues that came up related to how we valued the property. You know, I mentioned that the property is worth about $20 million. There was a theory that because of the use restrictions on the property, you remember that I mentioned that when the state transferred the property to the county, the state said this property can only be used for public recreation and beach access. And so there, there was a theory that because the property was, was encumbered with, that restriction that it it couldn't be worth that much because you couldn't go out and develop a home on it. So we we did a bunch of research and had to had to develop our, our arguments and advocacy around that. So, you know, overall, I think it's fair to say I've never worked on a matter that offered such a broad range of of issues really where there was no precedent. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I am just so proud of our legal team and the dozens of attorneys who spent tens of thousands of pro bono hours to make sure that we got this exactly right.
1: Yeah. I can imagine the insurance company being like, we don't have an actuarial table for
0: that. (laughs) Yeah. That was exactly what they said. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> right. And so so the Bruce family heirs, is there anything you want to say about them? How are they doing? How do they feel about all of this? So yeah, you-
0: no, no, I do I do want to talk about this. This is this has honestly been probably the most the most rewarding area of the case that that, that was really a surprise for me. And I and, and, and look, I'll I'll say something. I'll say that a lot of time as as pro bono attorneys, I feel like we have this image of ourselves as, you know, it's kind of superheroes, right? We're going to go and we're going to, we're going to put the cape on and we're going to go kind of help these, you know, these poor, you know, clients that, that need pro bono help, right? We've got this, this image. And that's not what happened on this case for me. I can honestly say that I learned more from my clients on this matter than I think I've learned in a long time. My clients in this case approached this matter with really with a humility and a dignity and a really just a commitment to wanting to do the right thing. And I remember we had a lot of conversations where I was trying to push the client to take a more aggressive position. You know, we should, you know, we should get an indemnity for this or we should insist that the valuation work this way or we should demand the right to to do this and the client would listen and they would and they would ask good questions and then they would think about it and they would come back and they would say we want to compromise with the county on this point or we want to accommodate the county's request on this and it would drive me nuts because I would feel like, I you know I, I approach this as as the perspective of like a zealous advocate, and it's like we can't we can't leave a dollar on the table. We got to squeeze every drop of juice. And what I learned from my client on this was was look the client kind of understood the importance of this moment, and they wanted to make sure that they kind of met the county's showing of of kind of of faith and commitment to trying to right a historical wrong, my clients wanted to make sure that they met and reciprocated that spirit. And so a lot of our conversations were me, you know, exasperating myself, trying to get the client to take a, you know, a, a different position. And at the end, the client saying, look, we hear you and we understand, but here's how we want to proceed. And I can't tell you how much I learned and developed and grew as an attorney from those interactions.
1: From hearing them say this is who we wanna be in that's the That's right.
0: And so look, this is this is obviously this is, you know, potentially life changing for you know for my clients. They're each gonna receive, you know, money in connection with this transaction that's gonna allow them to to potentially change the the economic trajectory of their lives, so it's 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 more than than just symbolic for them. This is real for them. This is not just important for my clients. So I feel like as an African American, as a Black American, I, I I take you know kind of pride, and this is important to me. I think this is an important you know thing you know for for folks in the Black community. It's it's important for for my profession to kind of see that this was that this was something that had not been done, but but to be able to to say now this work is no longer without precedent, and and I think about the court's decision and the and the powerful language that the court used in ruling that not only is it okay for L.A. County to do this, but by returning the property, L.A. County is actually strengthening our democracy, and it makes me realize that that this is important for all of us. This is a win for for our country, for its citizens, for the quality of our democracy to be able to take the opportunity to you know to not do justice, right? I I, I can't use that term here. Like, you know, justice to me implies, you know, returning the family to where they should be and and and, and they can never that can never be returned what they lost like the opportunities for for intergenerational wealth and and not just for the Bruce family, but for the, you know, they, they were on the verge of building what could have become a hospitality empire. Right. And we we talk about the Hilton and the Marriott, we should be talking about the Bruce corporation. And it's not just for their family, but it's like the employees they would have hired. It's the, the people who would have gone there and been inspired by what they had built. It's the, the charities and the nonprofits they would have supported. It's the political causes and elected officials they would have helped get elected, right? Like that, we'll never get that back. And so I don't I don't say that this is justice, but but it doesn't have to be justice for us to engage in kind of meaningful exercises of of trying to acknowledge a wrongdoing and trying to do the right thing. And so I think this is right. important and meaningful for all of us.
1: As we've mentioned several times, this hasn't been done before, and, and there's a lot about it that's unique. If somebody was inspired by hearing this episode, do you have ideas or suggestions for where an attorney could turn to to think about engaging, using their legal skills to engage in this acknowledgement, this reckoning seems like too negative of a word i'm trying to what were the what was the the truth and reconciliation yeah, you know, these process these acts
0: of restitution right? yeah so so I'll, I'll say a couple of things on that you know look the first thing i i want to really emphasize is this is this is about legal excellence this is about what type of lawyer you are you know kind of you know being the best of that type of lawyer and 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 going the extra 120% the other thing i want to say is since our firms involvement in this case has become public and gotten some attention, we get a phone call or an email every day. No exaggeration. Every day from black families across the country. And it goes something like this. Attorney father, my great grandmother owned valuable oil property in Texas. But when her husband died, they forged his name on the deed and they stole the property. Can you help us? Or attorney fathery, we owned 100 acres of farmland in Louisiana, but the sheriff came to my great-granduncle and they said if his family wasn't gone, there would be trouble. We, this is not an isolated incident, what happened with the Bruce's, like the, the facts and the stars lined up for us to have, have an opportunity here. But there is so much of this work to do on an individual representation level but also on a broader kind of public policy level. And there's one group now, it's actually a group that was founded by the woman who I mentioned earlier in the conversation, Kavan Ward. Her group is called Where Is My Land? And what that organization does is it tries to match these black families that feel like they have claims for you know, racially motivated dispossession of property and they try to match them with attorneys in their states that are willing to take those cases so you know you can you can get involved at the local level you can advocate for this type of of reparation work but but for me this all started by by wanting to develop you know great legal skills to be able to you know bring them to bear for the benefit of society so it really is about that legal excellence
1: When the Bruce family got their land back, they had to decide what to do with it. Now, L.A. County is actively using the Lifeguard administration building that sits on the land today. Initially, the Bruces worked out a deal to lease the land back to L.A. County. But shortly after my talk with George, it was announced that the Bruces are selling the property back to L.A. County for $20 million. This sale will allow them to rebuild the generational wealth that was stripped away back in the 1920s. In fact, this is the most concrete example I can imagine of how Black families were prevented from accumulating wealth in the past and how communities can take action to return that wealth today. And I feel genuinely proud that my profession, lawyers, could play a positive part in making it happen.
0: Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers working to improve access to justice. A special thanks goes to our producer, Daniel Pinitz, as well as our host, Alicia Aiken. Please note that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast represent those of the individuals being interviewed and not necessarily those of PLI. PLI is a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and other professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum of pro bono programs, visit PLI.edu slash probono.